You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this podcast, a keynote from Partitions and Borders, a comparative and interdisciplinary conference. The conference was jointly organised by University College Dublin and Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, and took place in UCD on the 24th and 25th of May, 2018. The conference received the financial support of the UCD Research Seed Funding Programme, Decade of Centenary's Internal Award Scheme 2016-2018, to and also the support of the School of History, the School of Politics and International Relations, and the UCD International Office. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. The fourth and final keynote of the conference was given by Dabali Mukherjee Leonard from James Madison University. Her lecture was entitled, Literature, Women, and the Partition of India. Borders, bodies, livelihoods. I, I take this opportunity to thank the organizers for the privilege of being able to speak to you to, uh, today, and um, especially to Connor, who's done such a fantastic job. Or everything seems to be in order, and um, and of course you've selected a wonderful line of speakers, both the panels and the stellar plenary addresses. And uh, with that, I'm going to get started. Um, as uh, Well, the presentation today is titled Literature, Women, and the pa- uh, Partition of India, Borders, Bodies, Livelihoods. My presentation this afternoon uses literary writings from India to study how the events surrounding the partition the violence, the displacements, invaded the recesses of the domestic sphere and brought pivotal changes in women's lives. The talk is organized around two major concerns in this body of work, which I discuss in the two sections. The first is the predicament of Hindu women abducted during the riots, many of whom, upon repatriation to India and restoration to their families, experienced rejection within the home. Of course, there will, there will be some overlaps with what uh, Harmeet Kaur Kinot was talking about uh, uh, yesterday in the morning panel. Reading fiction composed in the immediate aftermath of the partition, I discuss how, for many violated women, not only was their homeland partitioned and made into another country, but their homes and most intimate relationships were also demolished with their loss of chastity. However, the impact of the violence of partition on the lives of Hindu women extended beyond the experience itself and the frequent, though of course not invariable, subsequent rejection by their families. Traumatic as those were, partition also conspired with other crucial transformations in the life of middle-class women, above all, their entrance into the labor market, something that Sharmila Majumdar uh, spoke on yesterday afternoon. Dislocation, dispossession, and often the loss of male breadwinners in sectarian riots compelled formerly homebound middle-class women to seek employment to forestall the family's economic collapse. However, as literary accounts illuminate, this was not a straightforward tale of adaptation and triumph. The subject of the second section is this nuanced intersection of economic devastation and social change, as the refugee crisis brought on by partition came to shape women's lives 
and aspirations in the second half of the 20th century. Okay. So I'll start with the first section. At a prayer meeting on December 7th, 1947, Mahatma Gandhi addressed the problem of Hindu and Sikh families and the wider community's refusal to reintegrate women abducted in the partition riots. Um, maybe I should mention here that um, Hindu and Sikh women uh, were abducted by Muslim men just as Muslim women were abducted by Hindu and Sikh men. And then in, uh, at the end of November 1947, India and Pakistan entered into this, uh, what they signed the recovery treaty, uh, mission treaty, where they were going to return as many, or return, repatriate as many uh, women as possible from the other countries. So Hindu and Sikh women abducted and living in Pakistan were to be brought back to India, and Muslim women abducted by Hindu and Sikh men were to be sent back to Pakistan. Uh, in the case of Hindu women, uh, or, uh, Hindu and Sikh women, although my talk will focus on Hindu women exclusively, uh, for Hindu and Sikh women, many of them were no longer acceptable to their families because they were tainted. <clears throat> So this is Mahatma Gandhi addressing this problem. It is being said that the families of the abducted women no longer want to receive them back. It would be a barbarian husband or a barbarian parent who would say that he would not take back his wife or daughter. I do not think the women concerned had done anything wrong. They had been subjected to violence, to put a blot on them, and to say that they are no longer fit to be accepted in society is unjust. He raised the issue with his audience again later that month. There's another speech on uh, December 26th, 1947, which I'm not quoting. And in January 1948, the Prime Minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, made a similar plea. Their appeals indicate that the social rejection of violated women was becoming an issue that could not be ignored. Yet the public discourse failed to comprehend the depth of the trauma the women suffered. By contrast, literature on the partition, focusing on these women's circumstances, refused to shy away from the gravity of the issue. Instead, it undertook two related endeavors. The first was to force a deep, ethically informed understanding of the condition of these women by viewing the predicament from within their perspectives. Literature thus evoked the texture of the women's experience in a way that was absent in the political appeals and subsequent debates. For instance, Rajinder Singh Bedi's short story, Lajwanti, presented the reactions of family members of abducted and missing women after some were rescued from Pakistan. Why did they not die? Why did they not take poison to save their chastity? Why didn't they jump into a well to save their honor? They were cowards who basely and desperately clung to life. Why? Thousands of women had killed themselves before they could be forced to yield their honor and chastity. One of the women, whose husband would not take her back, vacantly mumbled her own name to herself, Suhagwati, meaning the happily married one. Another, seeing her brother in the crowd, cried out, You do not seem to recognize me, Bihari, but I have taken you in my lap and hugged you when you were a child. 
I should just mention here that there's a part that you see in square brackets, and there's a reason for that. This translation is by the author himself, but it has so far been, you do not seem to recognize me, Bihari, but I have taken you in my lap and fondled you as a child. Given that we are talking about a child, fondle seems somehow a little sexually charged. So I changed that part of the translation and made it hugged you when you were a child. So that's the reason. Whereas the public speeches failed to or did not want to imagine the horror that these women were suddenly confronted with, it is the unsayable that the narratives evocatively apprehended, mediating in the process a moral recognition of the women's pain. Rajinder Singh Bedi's short story, Lajwanti, and Ramapadu Choudhury's Korun Konna examine the impossibility of a return of the normal to structures of intimacy ruptured by the 1947 violence. Lajwanti, published in 1951, focuses on the breakdown of a marriage, while Korun Konna, published in 1952, moves to a more explicitly political register to suggest that women seek out new homes for themselves. Lajwanti is set in Ludhiana around 1948-49. Babu Sundarlal's wife, Lajwanti, who was abducted during the riots, is still missing. Her memory drives Sundarlal to work zealously for the local rehabilitation committee, whose members plead for the acceptance of repatriated women. Just as Sundarlal becomes reconciled to his loss, his wife finally returns. And true to the ideals he's advocated so long, Sundarlal brings her home, though not without some anxiety. His vexations are caused by sartorial minutiae, like the arrangement of Lajwanti's dupatta, or scarf, uh, and I quote, in a typical Muslim fashion with one end of it thrown over her le left shoulder, end of quote, as well as other changes, like the improvement in her health and skin tone. He reads these as signs of well-being with her captor, whereas he had imagined that she would be shriveled with grief. He is plagued by doubts regarding whether she had voluntarily returned to him. His acceptance of her is also tempered with irony because Lajwanti's brief absence has altered the dynamics of the marriage, a fact condensed in the switch from his former intimate mode of address, Lajo, to the courteously distant Devi, or uh, meaning goddess. This discursive recasting of her violated body into the sacred, inviolate body of a goddess pushes her beyond human contact and constitutes a denial of her embodiedness. It amounts ultimately to a rejection of her sexuality. Sundarlal's negation of her sexuality is directly related to her coerced sexual activity outside of marriage. By treating her as a goddess and thereby desexualizing her, he evacuates his marriage of sensuality. His wife becomes an object of worship rather than of his desire. Sundarlal, the narrator says, had enshrined, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm quoting again, had enshrined the golden image of Lajwanti in the citadel of his heart and himself stood at the doorway, keeping watch, lest the image be lost again. A Hindu woman, Lajwanti had experienced the intimate touch of a Muslim man. Now her husband's reinterpretation of her as a goddess secures her body from all future human contact. In ways both obvious and obscure, Lajwanti's sexuality constitutes an abiding source of anxiety. 
Regarding her abduction and her life before her return, Sundarlal raises only three questions. Who was he? Did he treat you well? And he never beat you? His queries are all centered around the other man in Lajwanti's life. Sundarlal's own agitated vow of compassion, that is his promise to abstain from domestic violence in the future, is prompted not by a renewed love for her or the memories of pain he had previously inflicted on her, but by the unreal threat that the other man, who never subjected Lajwanti to domestic abuse, was superior to him and that she might desire him. Thus, while he discursively announces sexuality, it remains the terrain of contest with his absent adversary. The actions of both men conspired to negate Lajwanti's autonomous sexuality, her ability to consent and feel pleasure. That he transcends convention and pardons Lajwanti, pardons, of course, within quotes, marks Sundarlal in his own self-conception as superior to the rest of his community. And an all-forgiving godhood, it's something he appropriates for himself. But he sanctions no space for Lajwanti to be heard. No sooner does he ask, who was he, than he halts her response with, let the past be the past. The narrator tells readers that Lajwanti had wanted at this point to unburden herself, but felt gagged by her husband's reaction. He silences her, not only because her narrative would contain evidence of extramarital intimacy, but also at a subterranean level, he, su uh, he suspects that she might express satisfaction with the quality of her other life and thus shatter his reconstruction of their histories in separation. Lajwanti's continued presence in his life is made conditional on her repression of her recent past. Normalcy is not, uh, sorry, normalcy in their relationship is not simply postponed, but prevented. The events of her abduction and violation arrest the possibility of a return to some pre-lapsarian bliss, that is her abduction uh, and violation as her lapse of character. Lajwanti's initial relief at her husband's kindness, that the fact that he accepted her back, is replaced by the realization that, and I quote, she had got everything, and yet she had lost everything. She was rehabilitated, and she was ruined. This is not to suggest that she missed the domestic assaults of the former days. In fact, after her return, she requests Sundarlal to, to desist from it in the future. But the earlier domestic disagreements had been enacted on a more equal footing in the marriage. Also, Sundarlal's use of the nickname Laju conveyed a certain intimacy. After her restoration, Lajwanti craved, craved for the affability and intimacy that she had once shared with her husband. But, and I'm quoting, now the question of a quarrel between them did not arise, for she was Devi and he her worshipper. The irony in the title Lajwanti, meaning woman of modesty, is further compounded since Lajwanti is also the Punjabi name for the touch-me-not plant, which is a metaphor for the character's condition. A raped woman turned goddess. She is protected from all human touch in the future. In addressing explicitly the problem of social rejection and offering a possible solution to the crisis in the lives of women like Lajwanti, Chaudhuri's Korunkonna, meaning daughter of sorrow, is perhaps the more daring of the two stories. 
It is set on the other side of the subcontinent in Bengal around 1946-47. An unmarried young woman, Arundhati, is abducted during the riots and returns with a child fathered by a Muslim man to a truncated family and the, and the contempt of neighbors. While Arundhati resists being shamed by prying neighbors, she conceals her recent past and her child from Shubimal, her childhood love, whom she meets many years after the riots. For his part, Shubimal evades her questions regarding his sister and Arundhati's friend Madhuri. Eventually, he tells her that Madhuri was abducted and returned spoiled, his words, and her, and her family married her off without disclosing the past. But Madhuri revealed it to her husband, whereupon he deserted her. She then returned to her family, but unable to withstand their scorn, she opted for prostitution. Arundhati realizes that Shubimal would react to her past with similar disdain. Also aware of her mother's unease regarding her child, Arundhati eventually chooses to leave her family and return with her child to her abductor. There are, uh, there's another story by the same author where a young woman who was abducted and has now given birth to a little baby actually resists coming back because she says, oh, they're not going to accept me, so what's the point in my going back? And anyway, the Indian state insists that she should be brought back, and she is. And as she had said her, uh, earlier, her family doesn't take her back. Madhuri's story provides an alternative ending to the story of Lajwanti. Lajwanti, like Lajwanti, Madhuri returns without any visible signs of violence. But unlike Lajwanti, Madhuri refuses to suppress her trauma, and her admission of her violation shatters her marriage. In Arundhati's case, the evidence of the violence done to her, the child, creates an altogether different problem. Her intimacy with a Muslim man constitutes a transgression, both on grounds of violation of the patriarchal code, as well as a political betrayal of the nation, since it was along lines of religious faith and the supposed impossibility of a harmonious coexistence that the subcontinent was partitioned. The child's presence is evidence of the rival's assertion of control over the Hindu community's women, and is thus a constant reminder of the national humiliation. The child is living proof of a failed Hindu manhood. Likewise, the death during the riots of Arundhati's father, who would typically be expected to protect her, strengthens the theme of an overpowered manhood. Uh, it's sort of momentous to speak about unwanted children, especially today in Dublin, uh, but um, I want to mention in this context that at this time in the late 40s and early 50s, um, abortion was not legal in India. Abortion would become legal in India only in 1971. But the government undertook what they called medical cleansing, sort of to me, and, and by, I'm sorry, I mean the government of India, undertook medical cleansing because they were aware of the stigma against these young women who had uh, conceived uh, children fathered by Muslim men. So in order to make them acceptable, uh, what happened was that they, in cases where it was possible, they, they, claimed, they performed abortion, uh, mass clandestine abortions on the women. 
And for those who, whose pregnancy had uh, progressed quite a bit or who had already given birth, uh, the state built orphanages to house these children. Now I'm returning to the paper again. Attempting a respectable a resolution, Arundhati's mother requests her to send her child to an orphanage. The Indian state, as I just said, sponsored uh, orphanages to house the children born of partitions violence in order to make the young mothers acceptable to their families. When Arundhati rejects the idea, her mother suggests that her unmarried daughter dress like a widow so that the family can keep the child and still live honorably in the new home. Thus, they can disown the rape and claim legitimacy for the child. But Arundhati refuses this solution as well. But her hopes of escape from her family and from the neighborhood by marrying Shuvimal are shattered when he reveals his own illiberal views and his family's intolerance towards his sister Madhuri. At this point, Arundhati must choose between owning her past and keeping her child on the one hand or accepting one of her mother's proposed solutions uh, <clears throat> on the other. She chooses her child and returns to her abductor in East Pakistan. I want to mention at this point that in the case of Muslim women who were repatriated to Pakistan, it was very different. My paper focuses entirely on Hindu women, but uh, Huma Dar, uh, a researcher on the partition on, Pakistan, on Muslim women repatriated to Pakistan, says that the 22,000 women who were, rest who were rescued from India and brought back to Pakistan were all married off. Uh, uh, Ritu Menon and Kamla Basan, also researchers, mention the Pakistani Women's Association and other social activist groups who managed to uh, uh, marry off the women. And in fact, even Mahatma Gandhi, uh, in that quote that I read earlier, right after that, he says, um, Muslim women uh, do not encounter this problem. Islam is liberal in this aspect. And so he sees it as, as early as December. 1947. And it's true that um, Muslim women repatriated to Pakistan did not have to face this kind of trauma. For Lajwanti, Arundhati, and Madhuri, national independence is a trauma. The country's freedom is inseparable from their loss of homeland through partition, the loss of control over their bodies in the intercommunity riots, and finally their loss of home through betrayal by their husbands, brothers, and even their mothers. Further, their stories illuminate how once Hindu women experience sexuality outside of wedlock with a Muslim man, their bodies must be removed from circulation within the libidinal economy of respectable Hindu middle-class domesticity. They are, in fact, not allowed to desire anymore. At the heart of the women's predicament is a requirement of chastity, which the discourse of anti-colonial nationalism <coughs> deemed synonymous with the purity of the family, the, com the community, and ultimately of the nation. While the discursive production of sexual purity as part of political ideology of gender dates back at least to the writing of the Manavdharma Shastra or the laws of Manu, uh, dated around the first century of the Christian era, in the anti-colonial period, the idea of chastity acquired new significance and came to be regarded as a political prerequisite for inclusion in the nation. Hindu cultural nationalism established a direct correlation between women's purity and the vulnerable nation treating women's bodies as symbolic territory. 
thus women violated by the rival community in the partition riots, unless excluded, became representatives of the fallen nation. Lajwanti and Karunkunna illustrate how women's belonging in the national community is contingent not only in on their residence in the right country, following the right religious faith, but also on possessing the right or chaste body. The nexus between chastity and national honor is transparent in Gandhi's speech delivered a little over a month after independence. This is a speech from uh, September 18th, 1947, and you'll see Gandhi taking a very different stand. I have heard that many women who did not want to lose their honor chose to die. Many men killed their own wives. I think that is really great because I know that such things make India brave. After all, life and death is a transitory game. Whoever might have died are dead and gone, but at least they have gone with courage. They have not sold away their honor. Not that their life was not dear to them, but they felt it was better to die than to be forcibly converted to Islam by the Muslims and allow them to assault their bodies. And so those women died. They were not just a handful, but quite a few. When I hear these things, I dance with joy that there are such brave women in India. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so while you ponder on this sanctioning of murder and suicide, I'm going to move on to the second section, uh, <clears throat> which is sort of a, a little happier in tone than what has come so far, though not entirely. Among the many transformations, this is section two. Among the many transformations that accompanied partition in the lives of displaced middle-class women was their large-scale participation in wage labor. In Bengal, looting, forced evacuation, and consequent forfeiture of landed property, and also in many cases the loss of male members of the family in inter-community violence, compelled many formerly homebound women to seek paid employment outside the home. Literacy among displaced women rose sharply. Joya Chatterjee, historian of the Bengal partition, notes that already by 1950, four times as many women refugees were, lit uh, were literate as women in the host population. In the five years that followed, refugee girls and women achieved a staggering increase of 60% in their rates of literacy. As refugee women rapidly became more literate, and as more of them joined the ranks of the employed, the working Bhadramohila, meaning gentlewoman, was a new and important phenomenon in urban West Bengal. Teaching positions were favored, and openings in girls' schools were swiftly filled by displaced women. However, faced with the total collapse of their families' wherewithal, women could not be choosers when it came to the jobs they did. They worked as clerks, bank tellers, telephone operators, even as police. Some found employment as cooks, nurses, au pairs, and maidservants, while others trained in the arts and crafts. The performing arts also benefited from the participation of displaced women. For educated upper and middle class Bengali women, opportunities for professional employment, mostly in the fields of education and medicine, first opened up in the late 19th century. But even in the early decades of the 20th century, the number of middle class women 
applying for jobs was still quite small. A cartoon by Binoy Kumar Basu dated 1927 and titled Officer Pothe Mohila, literally translated as Because I Haven't Done It So Far, A Woman on Her Way to Office, while in itself an acknowledgement that elite and middle class women were working outside the home, reflects prevailing prejudices against working women. Attired in a short-sleeved shirt over a sari, spectacles, an umbrella tucked under her arm, taking long strides in her heeled shoes, she cuts a rather ungainly and decidedly unfeminine figure. Indeed, she's a caricature of the masculinized working woman. But in 20-some years, things had changed. Changes in the region's economy, sorry, changes in the region's economy alongside the displacement that followed the partition altered circumstances considerably. Now women in large numbers began to seek paid work. This offered women some release from traditional gender roles, expanding their participation in society while curbing patriarchal vigilance over them. Crucially, it allowed many women a degree of economic independence. In her study on Bengali refugee women, historian Gargi Chakravarti notes that Generally, partition's gender dimension evokes images of violence, rape of women, cases of abandoned and missing women, and the trauma of a communal situation. But the silent metamorphosis of a woman's life remains unnoticed. The sense of sharing responsibility and at times taking on the entire burden of the family was a new uh, phenomenon in the trajectory of women's search for identity in Bengal. But this significant reconfiguration in middle-class society did not pass unnoticed, at least not in literature. Bengali fiction beginning in the late 1940s bears testimony to the changes the partition wrought in the lives of displaced women and serves as an important record of the historical experience of the political division. With protagonists such as Aruti, a door-to-door saleswoman in Narendranath Metro's Mohanagara, the big city, actually that's the first line, um, and Bina and Kamala, telephone operators in his novel Durabhashini, or Lady Telephone Operators, Neeta, a clerk in Shok- Shoktipada Rajguru's Megita Katara, or The Cloud-Capped Star, Pushpawala, a peddler on passenger trains in Shamarish Basu's Posharini, Hawker Woman, Nirupama, a school teacher in the Bindupalit's March or Fish, and Shutara, a college professor in Jyotirmoy Devi's Iparganga Oparganga, the river churning, to name a few. Novels and short stories captured the quiet courage of women who, without knowing or intending to, set off a transfer- transformation in the mindscape of both displaced and non displaced middle class women. This new generation of women made employment outside the home not only socially acceptable, but also respectable. Composed often in the melodramatic mode, this body of Bengali literary writings documents the social and historical processes whereby this change was effected. For Shutara, in Jyotirmoy Devi's 1968 novel, Ipar Ganga, which is translated as The River Churning, Uh, Education and employment offer means of survival and the possibility of a respectable 
life away from her estranged family. When Hindus in her East Bengal village are attacked during the Noakhali riots in the autumn of 1946, the adolescent Shutara Dotto loses her parents and older sister. A Muslim neighbor, Tamizuddin, finds her unconscious and brings her to his residence, where his family takes care of her. Despite Tamizuddin's communications, Shutara's brothers living in Calcutta show little inclination to take her in. The brothers were not present when the attack, when there was the attack in the village. They were living in Calcutta at that time, but the attack was in retaliation for what has become infamous as the Great Calcutta Killing, which occurred in August of 1946, beginning on the 16th of August through the 19th, but actually continuing uh, through the entire month. Okay. Uh, uh, despite Tamizuddin's communications, Shutara's brothers living in Calcutta show little inclination to take her in. Their unwillingness is based on her long stay in a Muslim home and a suspicion of her having been violated during the attack on the village. Still, on Shutara's insistence, Tamizuddin del delivers her to her brothers and, and extended family in Calcutta in the home of her oldest brother, Shanut's in-laws. The elderly women in the upper caste Hindu household disapprove of her contaminating presence, and in a move to keep Shutara away from the family, her brothers send her to a boarding school and later to college dormitories. She completes her education and is employed as a lecturer of history in a college in Delhi. She finds accommodations in a hostel for working women. Whereas Lajwanti, unable to talk to her husband, buries her trauma deep within, and Arundhati returns to her abductor as the only way to return her womanhood and her child, Shutara finds escape from her extended family's disdain and routine humiliations through education and employment. Shutara's inner monologues about her living quarters in the women's hostel with a nod to Virginia Woolf, with whose writings the author Jyotirmoy Devi was deeply familiar, dwell on the issue of women's independence, particularly their economic empowerment. And I quote, it was a room of her own, her own place, acquired with her earnings. From now on, her brothers wouldn't have to provide for her. They wouldn't even have to spare a thought for her. Has she become independent? Are women ever independent? End of quote. Shutara's autonomy and personal well-being are grounded in property, her rental of her room, the private space made possible by her wages. After being repeatedly moved around at the will of her brothers and the extended family, her room at the working women's hostel in Delhi offers stability. It is, it is a sanctuary for which she is indebted to no one. Within that rented space, Shutara is free. Iparganga Uparganga offers an uncommon glimpse into the life of an unmarried woman from the middle classes living outside the family fold. In contrast to the repeated trauma brought upon Shutara by her surviving family who offer no sanctuary nor show the slightest concern for her well-being, the hostel is a home. There she, transform, there she transforms from the silent, frightened, and passive adolescent present earlier in the novel to a bold and lively woman who feels comfortable sharing her past. There, Shutara is not rebuffed by her listeners, but met with friendship, 
Despite knowing of her prolonged stay in a Muslim home, her colleagues invite her to attend Hindu religious ceremonies and to go on pilgrimages. In other words, she is absorbed without prejudice into a new form of community. Also, living outside the family fold, she escapes patriarchal control over her sexuality and mobility. Her unrestricted freedom is clear in her travels with her colleagues to the mountains, meeting with her Muslim friends from Noakhali, and in her ability to make decisions on marriage proposals she receives. That said, Shutara's story is not one of simple triumph over circumstances. Her self-actualization comes at great personal cost, the murder of her father, the suicide of her mother, the abduction of her older sister, and the violence performed on her. This is followed by the trauma over her marginalization by surviving family members and her repeated shaming by the extended family. Above all, she's lonely. She's free to make her way in the world, but Shutara is not free from haunting memories and shattering grief. Her freedom is founded on loss. In the, in the real world, the story was often even harsher. Many women emerged as, as breadwinners, redefining their roles within the family, but it was often predicated on personal sacrifice. Partition oral histories and literary writings indicate that as daughters began to assume responsibility for maintaining parents and siblings, many often remained single. The decision to remain single is premised on the vestigial patriar uh, patriarchal belief that a married woman belongs to her husband and affines, and that after marriage, even if she has a job, the money she earns would not be her own and could not be made available to her natal family. The Bindu Palit's short story, March or Fish, offers a nuanced study of, of the women's predicament through the character of Nirupama. Exhausted from working multiple jobs to support her family and looking forward to her wedding, Nirupama nevertheless breaks off her engagement with her fiancé Bijon after she witnesses a brutal scuffle over food in a neighboring refugee family. She comes to believe that without the support of her income, her family will be reduced to similar degrading poverty. She sacrifices her hopes of love and a family of her own to take care of her parents and siblings. While it is Nirupama's decision to remain single, for Nita, another dutiful daughter, in Shoktipadu Rajguru's 1962 novel, Megita The Cloud-Capped Star, there is no choice. Nita gives up her dreams of higher education and works at her clerical job by day and tutors students in the evening to support her parents, her unemployed older brother, and pampered younger siblings. She even covers expenses of her inamorato sanat. But Nita's hopes of romance are ultimately thwarted by her mother Kadambini who, in an effort to keep Nita unmarried so that she can continue to provide for the family, sabotages Nita's relationship with Sanat. Fully aware of Nita and Sanat's attraction for one another, Kadambini ponders, and I'm quoting, Nita is essential to this household. She can't be let go. She earns a living. As for looks, she is much too plain. If, on the other hand, Gita, who's Nita's younger sister, can be hitched to an eligible man like Sanat, Kadumbini will be relieved of a huge burden. Uh, end of quote. 
She maneuvers pretty, pretty Gita's successful seduction of Sanat, thereby unburdening herself of the daughter who contributes nothing to the household by way of expenses or domestic chores while keeping Nita in harness for the family. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but the, but the opening uh, slide had, is actually um, from a from the movie, uh, from the movie Megita Katara, Cloud Cap Star, and it shows Nita, but by that time she is very ill. Uh, <clears throat> I won't go back to that, but uh, <clears throat> perhaps later at the end or something. Um, because Nita earns money, her mother will not spare her. Her income only enslaves her to the needs of everyone she loves. Although she is the breadwinner, she is denied its privileges. Freedom for Nita comes in the shape of a terminal disease. Her body's expiration alone ends its further exploitation. In this sense, freedom from labor, the free time that labor pr promises, is accessible to her only through death. Though fairly widespread in Bengal at the time, her tuberculosis also operates as a metaphor in the following ways. Uh, first, it intensifies the feeling of Nita's entrapment. There is no air left for her to breathe, suffocating her to death. And second, it indicates a broader social rot by which all norms of ethical conduct and decency have wasted away and the compassionate and unselfish perish. Historian Joya Chatterjee's acknowledgement of social changes brought about by middle-class women's participation in wage labor is cautiously optimistic. She writes that displacement, of course, was not automatically the harbinger of progress, still less of the emancipation or empowerment of refugee women in some simple or linear progression. Working women tended to have little control over the wages they earned. Despite the growing contribution their salaries made to the family's domestic economy, their control over their own lives was by no means securely established just because they had become wage earners. Yet some refugee women did begin, begin to achieve a measure of freedom and opportunity by joining the paid workforce or by gaining an education. These developments caused significant shifts in the social mores of caste Hindus. Decent women, traditionally tucked away in the Antapur or the inner quarters of the house, now went, out and, uh, now went out and about in the big world, bringing irreversible changes in the, in the Hindu middle-class notions of propriety and respectability. I conclude this section with an excerpt from the popular Bengali actress Shabitri Chattopadhyay's memoir, Amar Katha, or My Story, in which she writes about her family's impoverishment upon their displacement from Kamalapur in East Pakistan to Calcutta in India in 1947. The passage below reveals how her struggle to put food on the table led to a career in theater and cinema. We were going through very difficult times. My father did not have an income. We had to rent out one room of the small two-room house where we were living and use the rent money towards domestic expenses. But it didn't do much. So to help father run the household, I cast aside all shame and lined up at the gates of the film studio day after day. There would be openings and crowd scenes or dance sequences. It wasn't much money, 
At, at such times, I'd forget that we had once owned a palatial home in Kamulapur. Not only had we never experienced scarcity before coming to Calcutta, but we couldn't even imagine it. From there to this liver of a house, it was a nightmare. Although my father was opposed to my acting with strangers, such was providence that at, uh, that at a time of rising costs, it wasn't possible to run the household on the rent from one small room. In the midst of the riots, the partition, and his terrified escape, he couldn't bring anything. In exchange for our enormous house, that little house was all he received. So I had to plunge into acting and be the economic stave for my penniless family. What I missed out on was having a family of my own. Perhaps it wasn't destined, but it was to preserve the home that I'd fought so hard and sacrificed my personal interests. During a difficult time, I'd stood by my, by my late father and did whatever was necessary to survive. From trivial dance roles to acting in amateur theater clubs, it was all part of the effort towards collective survival. Chattopadhyay was selected to play the female lead in a number of films and plays about the partition. One, for instance, was Sholil Shane's 1950 play Nutun Ihudi, or The New Jews, first staged in 1951 and made into a film in 1953. She was selected for the role because of what she describes as my refugee-like appearance. In other words, she was undernourished and therefore very, very slender at this time. Now to the conclusion. Imperialism and anti-colonial nationalism's failure left a terrible legacy of religious division and ultimately partition with all its trail of violence, desperate migration, and abiding communal tensions. The failure of imperialism and or anti-colonial nationalism was no less surely in evidence in the legacy of economic peripheralization and poverty that have characterized the type of bourgeoisification in the sense of wage labor driven urbanization that South Asia experienced in the post-colonial period. Capitalism without wealth, or at least without security, has been the experience of many millions whose unrecorded struggles live on only by mute intergenerational transmission. And yet these lives find at least partial expression in the region's growing literature. The cold and unsensual, unsensual relationship between Lajwanti and her liberal-minded husband Sundarlal, Arundhati and her child, her friend Madhuri, and Madhuri's brother, whom Arundhati will never marry, Nirupama and Nita working, whether by choice or not, to feed their parents. The unnatural mother, Kadambini, forced to pit her own survival against her daughter's happiness. Shutara, forever lonely, if in some measure free, teaching college and living in a women's hostel. The kindly Tamizuddin from her natal village, whose family alone tried to truly heal the wounds uh, their fellow Muslims had inflicted on her. These are a few of the fictions that provide us today with some of the profoundest historical truth we can recover from a time and experience now rapidly passing beyond all living memory. And at least in part, this was anticipated at the time, which is to say, at the time, the scorching truth of what was happening, what had happened, could not, like Arundhati's son, be acknowledged. The experience that touched everyone could not be spoken of. The newspapers and the, and the government officials were scarcely able to recognize reality and felt small compulsion to record it, investigate it. So at, a time it were, at the time it was written, the literature of the partition felt an added burden of history. 
This is how the future will know. This is our best, in part our only way to tell posterity. In this sense, real, realism was imposed on these writings, or rather the authors accepted in a unique way the burden of conveying, of recording a history that could never be told as nonfiction. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other podcasting apps, such as Podcast Republic. If you enjoy our content, please rate and review our channel, as it helps others to find out about our work.